Welcome everybody to the Phys Ed Table Podcast. I'm glad that you have pulled up your seat for this fresh installment. To all the teachers out there listening, I hope that you have enjoyed your holidays, which we have now come to an end um, to here in Victoria. But if you're still on them in the other states around Australia, I hope that you are enjoying a well-earned break and a recharge ahead of Term 4. If you have been keeping up with our social media pages, you will see that There have been two big changes here at the podcast. The first, we have a fresh new logo, thanks to my very good friend, Stephen Heppel, who has also started up an exciting new range of gym and fitness wear called Mind Muscle Gym Wear. So get onto Instagram and Facebook and give him some love and a follow on his social media pages. But the second is that we are heading to a fortnightly release of the episodes. This is for a few reasons, but mainly with on-site teaching returning here in Victoria, it allows me more, a more comfortable time frame to meet with our guests, record, edit, and then release the episodes. But for you, the listeners, it allows a, a more steady-paced listening schedule for you to, to make your way through the episodes without getting lost or having to catch up. So every two weeks, the episodes will be coming out and we'll have some really exciting conversations that are awaiting release for you as we venture towards the end of the year. So last episode was episode eight with Joe Ritson, and it was a terrific and timely conversation as the announcement that primary schools here in Victoria would be returning to on-site learning. And Joe, in the episode, discussed her reflections and takeaways from her experience with remote learning and what elements she may bring back with her on site, but also looking towards her 2021 planning. It's also a terrific episode for secondary teachers who are unfortunately having to remain in the virtual world for hopefully just a small time longer um, and looking at their numerous online programs that they have developed and delivered over the year and how they can tweak them to in term four and, and round out the school year in a virtual capacity. So, Head on to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever your preferred podcast platform is and give episode eight a listen. But we turn our attention to this episode uh, and as I made it very clear on the socials this week, I am truly grateful to have the opportunity to merely be in the same room, albeit via Zoom, with these two physical educators. This episode, I am joined again by Joe Ritson. Uh, and perhaps the person who has been mentioned the most across the episodes, Mr. Bernie Holland. Bernie and Joe have known each other for a few years now, and as Joe mentions she, in the podcast, Bernie, like he has with many physical educators and professionals across Australia um, and the world uh, that we find out, um, he's mentored and supported Joe to integrate and consolidate as a physical education teacher here in Australia. And in the episode, we simply begin by discussing physical education in its truest sense. And as the conversation flows, we then begin to find ourselves questioning each other on a number of other areas, including the curriculum, teaching styles, content selection and assessment, as well as the influence that social media has had on our professional development and how we can better harness it for the future growth of our and our own and others teaching. 
So without further ado, sit back and pull up a seat and I have no doubt that you will find many gold nuggets from this conversation at the phys ed table with Bernie Holland and Joe Ritson. Um, welcome, Bernie, and again, Joe, to the Phys Ed Table podcast. Um, it's an exciting uh, episode that we've got lined up for today because uh, we've got uh, the person that's probably been mentioned the most in the episode, which is Bernie. Um, it seems to pop up every now and then that someone's been either inspired or guided by by his knowledge and, and his experience. So I'm really interested in um, listening to you guys discuss um, what we're going to call the now, the near and the next of physical education. Um, but I suppose we'll, we'll start off by um, introducing ourselves. Joe, you've already done an introduction, so I guess we'll hand it over to Bernie and he can give us a, a brief outline of his illustrious and uh, teaching career and, and where it started and, and I suppose where, where it's ended up now. Okay, thanks, Casey. Um... You did send that through me, so I will keep it brief, but there's a couple of points I want to make as I go along too. The first one was before my, um, before I started teaching, when I repeated year 11 and was asked at the start of year 12 how long I was going to take over year 12. And, and that stuck with me for years, that, um, that whole idea of creating expectations of failure right at the start of the year. Um, and that really stuck with me for a long part of my, of my uh, career. Um, anyway, I um, started teaching before both of you guys were, or did my undergrad before both of you guys were born, um, 75 to 78 in Adelaide, did a degree in PE and history, and what would now also be referred to as outdoor ed. Um, taught in Millicent, South Australia for a year, then made a big decision to go to the States, basically got a phone call on the Oval. I can still remember it, and I was got offered a graduate scholarship at uh, Central Washington University, went over there, uh, late 79, did my master's degree in special education, and then started working in Vancouver, Washington as an adaptive PE teacher, which was the start of my consulting career. I didn't realize at the time I was working with 40, 40 different schools, um, between the sizes of basically 35 kids up to um, in the hundreds and just got introduced to a wide range of teachers. And I think one of the things we need to learn is that we can learn from every teacher we come across um, rather than we can learn good, bad or indifferent. Partway through that, I knew I wanted to do my PhD because I was, um, there was nothing in adapted PE then available. I always laugh, I may have told you guys, one of the textbooks or books I was using to get my information out of was called A Clumsy Child. Um, which uh, I guess they were just describing the child's movement. But part of my um, thought around movement really developed then. And then I was fortunate enough to, to get offered a couple of scholarships of PhD and um, chose Michigan State University. It ended up being a really wise choice as I was able to study under two, two world authorities, one Vern Seafelt and another Janet Wessel, um, one motor development and Janet Wessel who was probably the most inspirational educator I've ever come across. Um, and I think, uh, and, I, and I was fortunate enough to be her last PhD student, and I still have her academic gown hanging up in my, column, in my uh, closet. Um, so it's awesome. She was, she was just 
inspirational and tough, <laughs> very tough. Um, and that's for those of you that know Jeff Walkley, who uh, worked on, we worked on the first FMS manual together. That's where we met. Two Adelaide boys who'd never met each other, met in Michigan, um, East Lansing, Michigan. So that's great. From there, after I did my PhD, I then made a very, I think a very wise choice. I, I knew tons of stuff at that stage, or at least I thought I did, about motor development and adapted PE and, and chose not to go into academia as I was expected to and went back to uh, teaching and only taught for, for a couple more years in adapted PE in Mesa, Arizona, and then also worked half-time out of Arizona State University, which was, which was fantastic. I, there I got to meet, and you can check these names out, Chuck Corbin and Bob Pangrazy, who were two giants in the initial area of, of fitness and education and primary physical education. And there I was also able to build my consulting and was able to, the, my work out of Arizona State was going into all sorts of schools um, and school districts and working with them in setting up and developing uh, their adaptive PE uh, skill set amongst classroom generalists and PE teachers. And it was a really good experience going from places like Guam to Maine and to working in a school system, the LA public school system, which at that stage had somewhere over 60,000 children with a disability in it. And so it was, that was just awesome. Then uh, I took a year off. Man, before my time, I took a year <laughs> off and was a stay home, was a stay home dad for a year, which was which was fantastic. From two two things: one, I got to see my my oldest boy grow, but also um, when I went back to teaching at uni, it really gave me a perception of the challenges of, in particular, the single mums, because I I just got exhausted watching a little kid while I was um, uh, what was it? while I was just at home with no other responsibility. I was doing a little bit of consult, but not much. Um, but yeah, it gave me a real perception on, on things, which, were, which was great. Um, but then I applied for a job, got a job in Wisconsin in their system, and there I taught at one of the universities in Stevens Point and um, taught, if we can think of where we are now, at that stage I was teaching the undergraduates an adapted PE minor and I had four different courses in adapted PE and was also teaching their growth and development. So some of the teachers there were pretty well trained or they weren't well trained maybe because it was me, but they were, uh, they had plenty of opportunity for training. Um, and also there I started uh, another thing which has surprised a few people coaching women's soccer. I coached a couple of years at, at Michigan State and was also coaching assistant coach at the university there in football soccer. Um, stayed there three years and then uh, came back to the state, got a job at RMIT, um, 1992, and I was there for 20 years and one week. The one week was really important because that gave an extra $10 per year on my go going away gift from uh, from the university. And anyway, I was there and did a whole range of roles. It was just, sorry about my lack of humour, but a whole range of roles and I taught methods, community curriculum development, growth and development, adapted PE, um, taught a whole range of prep classes. That's where we first started teaching thematics or theme-based teaching. We were teaching that uh, probably from about 95, 96 onwards. And that is what is now, um, you know, it's now still really starting to grow as a way of looking at things. But we taught units there and um, 
if you want to ask about my thoughts on preparation of training, I'm happy to uh, share that too. I also got involved in, in leadership roles there from, you know, just a unit leader through to course leader. And when I left the university, I was on academic board. I think it's really important as PE teachers that we get engaged in the rest of the school. I go into too many, particularly secondary schools where you've got the PE teachers down in the staff room and they separate, even though they, many of the people end up becoming leaders in the school, I think we really need to connect with the whole, whole school staff. Um, then I, I probably, I then left university in 2012. We were not a, I just, I'd had enough of, of higher ed and the way it was going, even though I'd, I'd um, one of the things I was always passionate about, which I still am, was mentoring and developing, developing mentoring programs and, Myself and a couple other staff, we run a range of um, things around mentoring programs, using fourth-year students to mentor first-year students and so forth. Um, and then came to came to Ashford in 2012 and been there since. And um, probably um, have continued in that range of mentoring, engaging with teachers, trying to have an influence on teachers and those people who interact with teachers. Um, it'd be remiss of me to sort of not say that I think it, um, I shared this elsewhere, I felt as though um, ATSPA had, from a university viewpoint, had lost a bit of focus. I remember in my last couple of years at, at uni, um, they, I asked them to come out and talk, talk to my final year students and I got the response of, well, why would I do that? And I'm thinking, well, maybe because they're going to be your future members. And, and at that point, though, and it really helped with the refocus onto it, Trent Brown, who currently works for us, was at that stage president of ASHPA. And um, he really helped refocus and really support that refocus. And so, yeah, I've been there now eight years and probably got a couple more years left than that. And so, yeah, it'd be good. Anyway, thanks. No, um it's certainly it's certainly a journey and i suppose it encapsulates what everyone now understands about you and your and your philosophy um towards physical education but i suppose joe um we've already heard a bit about your story but um what i suppose i'm interested in hearing is how did you come into uh to network with, with bernie and and i suppose atchba more broadly and i suppose you could probably speak about your role um in atchba currently yeah, I think, um, look, when I moved into a school that I felt really supported in, it was a school which gave me the opportunity to take a real priority in what I wanted to do and achieve. And I think that kind of facilitated me to attend ATCHPA conferences. And I just it was on my radar. So anything that ATCHPA was doing, I wanted to um, be a part of. And I went to a few conferences, met Bernie, and then I think after a year being exposed to the conferences and the practical sessions that they offer, I kind of put myself out of my comfort zone. And I remember getting an email from Bernie, um, which was about the conference expression of interest to present last year at the annual conference. And, you know, it was a big leap to not really know exactly the area that I was doing really well without knowing the bigger picture because I'd only been really 
exposed to these opportunities in Australia for a few years, coming from an English teaching secondary background. And I met Bernie and we emailed and we talked and guided me through a few options and you know, came and visited me at school. So I guess when Bernie talks about his mentoring program and you know, wanting to help other teachers and connect, that's exactly what he did. So I've come to meet Bernie by probably putting myself out of my comfort zone and that has opened up so many opportunities. And now I see Bernie very much as a, a mentor, as somebody who I can use as a sounding board, get his insight, um, certainly, his honesty and critical thinking, um, which is very insightful. And that's just given me uh, a real energy and passion to probably be a bit like a Bernie, be someone who is regard so well regarded and knowledgeable about what they do. And that as Bernie has um, gone into his experience and his history, this is something that does take time. Um, so I guess now, I'm just trying to invest as much time in professional opportunities, um, putting myself out there, um, working with ACHPA to help with materials or just the networking, being a part of those lunchtime staff rooms, which has been great through the remote learning experience, just to connect and collaborate with other people. And um, yeah, I joined the board uh, earlier this year, which again is just a, another bigger picture plan and um just to get a bit more knowledge and experience of how this all operates which has been great so so yeah so meeting bernie has provided me with lots of opportunities and look here we are today doing this with you as well so it's been great so far yeah i guess that's i think that's the big thing that i um really appreciate about um Atchpa victoria but Atchpa as, as a as a whole is that it's such a collaborative platform. Um, you know, the presenters that, that, that give up their time and, and are willing to share their ideas and their experience are just as willing to hear back from you um, in order to gain some extra knowledge from, from, the, from the crowd or the, the audience that they're presenting to. So yeah, um, yeah ACHPA is just such an important organization for, for our industry. I guess the first question is um, that I'd like to pose to you is what is physical education in its truest and I suppose if there is a simplistic uh, way of putting it, but um, how would you describe it and has, has contemporary education society changed the meaning um, of physical education or would you still um, define it um, as you would have um, a, a few years ago? I, I, my, my, my thoughts are pretty, I think, are pretty simple. And it's about engaging children and young people in purposeful movement, building movement capacity so that they have, they, we, can, we can build a love for movement, but also a, an understanding of why we move and how we move. But it's just the... I, I use this example I used to with my undergrad students, and this is a really simple way. But if we can get every kid by the end of year 10, we'll call that our compulsory PE time, to understand why they should move every day for a period of time at a period of intensity, and they get that, then the rest of PE, to me, is adding other options to move. 
providing other opportunities that they can move through and through and with. But if they don't have that core base, then it's they won't they won't engage in movement. It's like teaching the kid to read, but they never want to read a book. Um, so yeah, that's that's to me is pretty simple. Yeah, and I think I'd just like to add um, just more so with the how has contemporary education and society mm. changed things a little bit. And I would actually say that it has really empowered PE because having a curriculum, having ACHPA who advocates for PE, you know, there's this real empowerment to make it inclusive, make it equal, um, have all of these facilities available. And, you know, it's not just about um, being a good sports performer, which makes you a good PE student. So just having this curriculum and sport exposure has just really defined it and made it um, a lot more serious, I guess, to understand the how, the why, and the learning through movement. And, and the curriculum is a bigger picture. But I guess another really important part as well is certainly here in Australia, there is so much exposure to sport. And I'm a bit big advocate for females in sport. And, you know, we're really shifting. Well, there has been a cultural shift to have, you know, the um, women's football and role models coming into schools who are women. So I think there's just a real opportunity at the moment to have a real good focus on PE and it's just become the bars being raised because mm. we're exposed to so much more opportunities in sport. Yeah. I, I, I was really reflective when I typed that question um, in that when I said contemporary, how has contemporary society changed um, physical education? My mind immediately went to potentially the negative influences that um, have impacted on physical education or, made it more challenging for people. But when you look at it in a broader sense, like you said there, Joe, there's so many opportunities to engage in physical activity and physical education now than there ever has been. You, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned about women in sport. Um, I suppose you look at the cultural diversity in sport now, um, you know, and the inclusivity settings and all that. I think it is, and it approaches, I suppose, the physical literacy sense of things where we must expose students to the opportunities that there are out there to be physically active and move in yeah. across their across their lifespan. Yeah, and I think more people being, like, I mean, as female PE teachers as well, sorry, just, um, it's, there is a lot more role modeling of females. And I know sometimes, I mean, there's the trend, isn't there, that boys are sometimes more active than girls. And I think for me, when you see everybody engaging equally and inclusively, whether they're a really good athlete and they go to umpteen clubs outside of school or they don't do any clubs outside of school, but they're still having fun and engaged in PE. Yeah, I think that's just just awesome at the moment because when I was doing PE which wasn't that long ago I certainly had a different experience that it was very much if you were a good performer and you represented a club you were on a different pedestal compared to everybody else so I really like now that we're engaging for mm. the whole community. Mm. I think there's some good points there there's as you're saying that Joe I just thought back to when I came out from England uh, when I was nine and I played soccer and I won't tell you what it was called then, 
and how I was referred to because soccer was not mm -hmm. AFL. And so it was quite different. And the only options you had were, um, but as a boy, as a boy and a girl, and girls had fewer options. The only options mm -hmm. I had in summer, in winter, were basically football and soccer, and tennis and cricket, and maybe a bit of baths. But that was it. But so it has really broadened, which is awesome. We've also seen a significant changing in. I was really trained very much in the biophysical model, and very much in that and that stayed that way the performance base we have moved to a lot more inclusion of and the socio ecological models of lot of engagement and i think in some ways there still needs to be a real calibrating of those two but the but i also think we've got a challenge at the moment that some of the people who will be listening to this and those of us talking are really across the purposes of the curriculum Mm -hmm. But we still need to continue to influence others because if the terminal, if fitness testing was mentioned in the paper tomorrow, we'd still get lots of negative criticism. Of that. Yeah. And I know there are still schools, many schools who are still doing fitness testing, skills testing and doing nothing with it. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've moved a long way, but we haven't moved a long way in other areas. And so I think there's, yeah, we, but we're moving in the right direction, but I was also thinking, uh, in response to this, I just received, uh, you guys haven't got it yet, but I just received Ray Breed's second edition of his text. Mm -hmm. uh, he sent it to me the other week. And that sort of text would have been received in the curriculum 15 years ago. Mm. Game Sense was just coming into the sports space, but to teach using a Game Sense theme-based model was only if you were a great in Victoria, only if you were a graduate of RMIT would you've heard about theme based at that stage, I think. Mm. So yeah, the, just the what the greater acceptance and hopefully that acceptance will lead to ongoing practice of that acceptance. Yeah. And and Joe, you mentioned you mentioned that we um, are now fortunate enough to have a curriculum that um, I suppose provides a framework for for what we're going to teach in um, how how would you interpret that the curriculum and how it really encapsulates what we are trying to teach? So we've got we've got all these different terminologies of moving the body, understanding movement, and learning through movement. And I suppose Shane Peel he also talks about education in through um, about, and he adds in um, because of movement slash sport. H how do you think the curriculum really encapsulates? physical education and what we're trying to achieve in it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's the, the idea that it, it is the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And I guess if we, an example would be, if we don't understand movement, we can't actually move successfully. So I thought of an example that if we, if we don't understand how and why we have to move into open space to receive a pass, then we're never going to be able to move into the open space. So I guess with the curriculum set up to be, you know, moving the body, understanding movement and learning, it, it builds a bigger picture for us to focus on. So I would say traditionally, um, I would have just gone down the moving the body and by having the curriculum with all the other areas, it really for, well, forces you to mm. understand that bigger picture which is really important. And that's, I, I certainly use a theme-based approach for that because it's a little bit, it lends itself more so for the bigger picture and encapsulating 
everything that we are doing in PE. Yeah, I think, and I think that's um, when you introduce a unit, I think, you know, now I don't do it by saying we are doing overarm throwing. You know, like you said, we talk about that theme-based approach. Well, why are we doing overarm throwing? What's, is there a concept that we're trying to use overarm throwing in? So students aren't just focusing on um, the, the physical competency that they would perceive the overarm throw to look like. They're actually looking at the broader picture, like you said. Bernie, do you have anything further to that? No, I think that's a, a good example, Joe, because we're, we're trying to, and I guess in saying that, and what you're saying there too, Casey, is we're trying to get teachers to move away from thinking that we are teaching a skill or a sport, but we're trying to um, gain that, develop the competency. That's still important because they still need competency to mm. do things, but they need to have an understanding of why they're doing it and where they're doing yeah. it and how they're doing it. And maybe that not everyone's at their level and mm. that we have different capacities. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the premise behind the curriculum is really um, addresses all of those things. Whereas in my early days, it was all about the doing. Mm -hmm. mm. It was all about, can you do this or not do this? You're good. You're not good. You succeeded. You failed. Um, as I did year 11, <laughs> but, um, but no, it is, it's, it's the, the, the whole philosophy behind it is really, is really good. Yeah, I guess it's the um, it's the transfer of skills, isn't it? So, you know, being able to do the overarm throw, which is actually a component of five or six different sporting activities, and it's understanding that link. And I guess when we start to understand movement, we understand that a skill is not just something that you do by itself. It's actually embedded in so many other areas. And that's what I think is really powerful when you open up the bigger picture and you present that to students, they then soon realize why, why is catching important and why is kicking important? Because it gives them so many more opportunities to do activities yeah. and be successful. But I think too, we need to take, as you're saying that Joe, we need to take that broadly. And I'll, I'll use an example. A few weeks ago, I was talking to um, someone who presents with us in the game center space and he is awesome in that space. And we're talking about that. And he's trying to influence the rest. He's now finally getting traction. He's a secondary teacher with the rest of his staff on taking on a game sense approach. And I said to him, so do you guys still do fitness testing? I already knew the answer to that question. He goes, yeah, we do. I said, well, why'd you do that? And he hadn't thought about the whole idea of fitness teaching. Or if we do happen to do a fitness test, whatever it is, mm. we understand that why are we doing, why are we doing the beat test? And most people go, oh, we want to improve our cardio. But you actually explain the concept behind it, the construct, why aerobic fitness is important. You don't have to necessarily improve. You might just maintain because so that whole idea of taking that all the way across the curriculum, not in what we see as the easier, not the easier, the more identifiable areas of the four game-based categories. I guess my next question is... Um, do and I think it's really like you've touched on there, Bernie. It's really easy to identify the areas, um, although you didn't want to say easy, but the ones that are easy to teach um, or easy to refer to. But do you see do you see any of the substrands or particular elements of the substrands in our curriculum um, either forgotten or misused? 
Um, I'd say not so much forgotten or misused. I would probably say undervalued or under, not fully understood mm -hmm. because we have a lot of teachers who are taught to teach physical education, but I know other teachers who are taught um, the how and why, but not the how to teach the physical, depending on where they're trained. And now, and so we've got a lot of primary teachers who unfortunately only have one or two classes in HPE and they need to really learn the whole lot. Um, mm. And there's others who, who are trained in the teaching of the physical, but I know there's, um, there's been a lot of uh, value placed on, you know, the understanding and learning through movement, but potentially less, un less value on actually understanding the physical part of the movement so that they can't under, they can't observe um they may not understand what correct movement and moving you mentioned moving into space they may or may not be able to discern what moving into space is mm. they've read about it and they've studied it so I, I know there's there's looking at you know critical thinking inquiry-based teaching but they haven't got the necessarily the basics mm. because you know again i quite right you know ray said from you know his his observation ray Bree's observation was you know if someone can move into space about 80 80 percent of them know how to defend space they just mm -hmm. haven't but i know that um when i took talk with teachers i led a workshop a, a few years ago in singapore where <clears throat> they evidently teach they teach game sense all the way through their curriculum and i was working with a group of teachers and after I was doing some things, I stopped and asked some questions. And at the end of it, I just use, you know, can we use any of the game categories? But most of them hadn't experienced that game category themselves. So they couldn't necessarily understand the experiences they were trying to teach. Um, and I, I was speaking to a, a lecturer at one of the universities last year, and they they, they when I talked about that with them, their response was, well, they can go and um, learn about the movement by watching some YouTubes and find out about the rules. And I'm thinking, no, it's a bit more complex than that. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to be a good performer, but to understand, for example, moving back to centre court mm -hmm. after you've hit the ball in down ball, tennis, table tennis, whichever one, maybe a little bit of experience will help you in the teaching of that because I've seen teachers who they just don't get that yet. They understand why they should be doing it, but they actually can't help the children in the doing. Yeah. Yeah. So. And Bernie there, um, I had that in my example too, actually, that um, the learning through movement is actually where the experience and the knowledge comes in. So, looking at strategy and modifying a task or making a connection is quite the hard bit because if we just said tennis we'd think of a tennis racket and a net but we know that we've got to modify so we might use the down ball game as the the, the leading to a net wall game we might use a line marking we might use a big tennis ball we might use a small tennis ball we might not use a tennis ball we might not use a tennis racket we might use our hand so there's all of the modifications that I think that is the bit where you have to teach and you have to see things to mm. learn how to, you know, 
how to bring that success and teach the learning through movement and model that to students. Yeah. And I think that's that, that just opens up so many other doors to get students engaged and make it inclusive as well. But we've got to be able to modify and know the modifications as a teacher to help our students. Mm. Yeah, and, and we need to, like I said, we don't need to be good at things, but we need to understand how things work and how, how activities are completed, be it gymnastics, be it dance, be it, be it a sport, we have to have some appreciation um, of, of what it is we're teaching. And mm. I see some people who, um, who unfortunately, they, they may not have that, that degree of experience and opportunities. Um, no, it, take, it takes me to a, um, a bit of a story. Um, where when I was going through secondary school, um, we'd always come, like the athletics unit was always one of the most anticipated units um, throughout the year. And when it came to learning hurdles, I would, you know, step back. I don't want to do hurdles, you know. All the hamstrings are a little bit tight. I might miss out on, you know, today's lesson. Um, and then when it came to actually teaching it um, through a pre-service unit that I did, um, I actually took myself away, grabbed a few hurdles and actually gave it a go for the first time in my life after dodging all these athletics lessons in my own schooling experience and gave it a go. So I could actually understand how the movement and I suppose the biomechanics of our body works in order to get over that hurdle. So then I can conceptualize it and then teach it to the students that I'm then trying to um, build up the skills and the competence to then go and do it themselves. Yeah, I think I think that's a good example from a couple of angles. It reminds me when I was doing my undergrad teaching <laughs> teaching experiences back when we used to have um, ten week and twelve week blocks of teaching in our undergrad. Um, the I I would I didn't even plan to teach the soccer because I was playing a reasonable level of soccer, so I could just go out and do it. And that was a really good lesson because I knew it so well, but I couldn't teach it to start. And so, but once I thought about it, I could, but the other, the other end of it that you're saying there too, which is important that Casey, I'd assume that you've had a, there's some sports that you played that you're good at or some activities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you're, you're trying to avoid something you're not good at. Mm. And we've got lots of kids that can't do any activities and we're still asking them to, to do those. So I think it's, that's an important um, thing for us to remember. I suppose the expectation with the curriculum is that across a two-year band that we're, you know, expected to cover, you know, everything. Um, but it is an ongoing battle for teachers, you know, with a, we already talk about the overcrowded curriculum um, and then you throw in the interruptions and the curveballs that we receive on a daily basis. But And, Bernie, you... Um, to talk about frequently and there's a tip of the week out there that um, Atchbury Victoria released that really covers this um, in quite really well, uh, really good detail um, where they talk about are all fundamental movement skills equal and how you um, uh, selectively teach um, various fundamental movement skills within your curriculum. I suppose as a teacher, if you're a beginning teacher or an established teacher and you're sitting there planning your curriculum, how do you firstly go about identifying what am I going to 
teach in order to cover this curriculum. Joe, do you have a, a process that you go through? And then I suppose we'll, we'll delve into how Bernie recommends that, um, that we sort of go about it. Maybe judge Tia. <laughs> no, no judgment. No, no. Um, I'm out of touch. <laughs> I think the thing is, it's it, it is context dependent, isn't it? We all have those um, non-controllables. We've got different class sizes, different facilities, different school leadership. Um, we've got different students from different cultures so we've got we're all in a totally different position so i think we do have to be careful that one model does not fit all but we can certainly pull bits that are useful and uh, and modify them and implement them into our own teaching but for me i guess one of the important things is we do have to work around the the dates the district dates um so i always try and map out when all the dates of you know athletics carnivals are your districts and then slot in the activities around those dates as well and then for me it is about having a clear sense of priority about what you're going to do and, and i just block off a few uh, the amount of weeks or the time but then there is an element where student voice and student progress lends me off on different tracks so i do have an overarching plan and i do have that kind of backwards by design model but at the same time it's just exercising some flexibility when mm. we are teaching to adapt because we all know that when we write something down on a piece of paper and then we go to deliver that lesson it's never <laughs> it doesn't always go that smoothly so for me, it is about probably not trying to do everything because then you'll, you'll achieve nothing, but just working out what your priorities are and having, certainly with the FMS skills, um, I guess my saying here is equality is a lie because no two things are equal and some things will always take a longer time to master than others. So I guess it's working out which skills do need more time dedicated to them and you know allocating a slot of time or the developmental sequence when are you teaching which skills um do you have a composite class how does that interrupt mm. the presentation of the developmental sequence with the age so i think for me it's um certainly scheduling everything and having having your overview and having your your themes in there but then i certainly do give a lot of um, student voice because I feel if I just said this is what we're doing all the time that mm. wouldn't allow the engagement so I think there's the exercise and some flexibility in what you're teaching and how you're doing it and having all your sources there but then um, building and pulling the bits when you need to so hopefully I guess I'm, I'm trying to say that I don't think you can pick up somebody's school overview and go that's going to work for me and then do it so it might sound quite vague but i do have a plan but it's very flexible one thing i reflected on last year was um, through student feedback well, and and through observations as well is that i realized that a lot of our students um, go and uh, play golf at our local golf course we've got a beautiful golf course that's down the road from our from our school um, and a lot of students were 
really asking me to to do a golf unit. So then I tied it in with my target games unit and we um, engaged with sporting schools and we got that uh, amazing resource that's available through there um, to, to deliver a golf unit within our target games unit. So like you said, it is context dependent. And it was one of the things that one of my lecturers said to me during university, he says the first thing you need to do when you get a job is go for a drive around your area. You know, what are the facilities, uh, the recreational areas that are available to the students to engage in, in your learning area of physical education? Um, and then take all that in um, and then allow that to have some input into how you plan your program. I guess what, so to pick up a couple of things that Joe said, um, I remember when I used to train undergrads, I said, you, your lesson plan, because then I'd have them, you know, do fairly detailed lesson planning because they needed it. They needed to think through, they couldn't, they had challenges thinking on their feet. They had challenges remembering basic things about stuff. But I said, over time, your, um, what you plan to do and what you actually do should probably get a little bit closer. You know, and, and I think once you've been in the school two or three years, you have that feel. Because I think it takes teachers um, a couple of years to get to know their school. And what you're saying there, Casey, about the two, that, um, you know, drive around the neighbourhood is, is awesome advice. You know, I know an assignment that one of my kids did, which maybe you could relate to this, was uh, when he was in school, was they had to drop a pin on our house and then do a... Um, what you say, do a report on all the places where they could be active within about two kilometers of the house. And so, Comes yeah, handy now. <laughs> yeah, it really does. But, um, but I guess I go back as well to what, what you're saying that we, I think the curriculum provides lots of flexibility and for some teachers, that's great. But for other teachers, and I see in the primary space who don't have a great understanding of the content, that can be a limitation, which is why we then put out a batch for those curriculum charts. We weren't directing teachers what to do, but a lot of teachers didn't, could not interpret the content descriptions. Mm. They'd look at them and go, what does that mean? But, but I go back to, <clears throat> excuse me as well, some of the things and some of the things you may mention, Joe, um, you know, where your students, what's your context and those things. Um, finding out about the background of your, of your kids. I can remember working in, in Arizona and knowing that um, some of the kids came, um, and I want this to, to be sounding right, but there was a strong Mormon community in Arizona, in Mesa. And I knew that those kids, when I sent stuff home to them, they had such strong family values anything that went home with those kids, they would practice on with them in a really positive mm. way. Other kids wouldn't. So my expectations changed within class based on the families. And you would see that. Um, some kids are thriving at the moment because of their families. Some aren't thriving as much. But I also think we need to have that. The first thing I ask teachers is, and you've heard me say this, <laughs> can you define your outcome for your program in 25 words or less? And many people don't think about it that way. The idea behind that our FMS created equal was it's not about FMS, it's about everything. When I'm teaching a unit and you could, you know, some teach it by theme, some teach it by sport, but I still see teachers who think they can teach a whole sport in six weeks. And so looking at what resources, what equipment, what things, and, and I think, and Janet Wessel, 
back in 82 introduced me, 1982 introduced me to this. And when I was working, started working in the adaptive peer space was, Bernie, how much time do you have to teach? And I, I, I still bark on that one because some teachers think I'm going to do a five week unit. Whereas actual fact, you guys have an hour a week for your PE. Mm. That means yeah. you've got a five hour unit, yeah. not a five week. And I think we've got to really drill that down. How much time do I really have? And within that time, what can I realistically choose? And within that time, I've got to make really important decisions about the content I have. Yep. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. I think in reality, we always over plan because we think we will have those six hours. But in reality, sometimes by the kids get down to you or they're doing an assessment or something takes longer than it should or I don't know, the fire alarm goes off and there's some interruption. In reality, you might only have, you know, two thirds of well, that time. So you're, well, you're well, with, data, oh, I can get to that. <laughs> well, well, the data might suggest um, that if you can have 50% of your time on task where kids are doing doing something or learning about, by learning about it, could be they're talking about it, but learning about things, you're probably doing really well. Um, and so, yeah, and it's really important we have that, that real clear focus and use of our time. You know, our circumstances in Victoria, we've completely shifted to um, an online platform in, in how we interact with the students and how we interact with each other. But that's been moving in that direction for some time now. And I, I guess um, actually Victoria is moving in, in that way with their virtual conference, which we'll touch on a little bit later on. But, um, and we've had a few discussions, you know, off the record about this, but what is your perspective of the online world um, of HPE teachers um, Bernie, I suppose you could have your, um, your, your say on this. I think it's, it's awesome and potentially awesome mm. in the sense that I think it, it's given us a, a vehicle to connect with people we wouldn't normally connect with. And particularly for PE and in particular for primary PE, because as you know, you're, you're islands. You are an island in your school. You may have a support person there, a sympathetic person there, but you're, you're largely an island in your school. So the ability to connect is just fantastic. I think what we, um, and for us, it's great. You know, we've got teachers presenting from overseas in our virtual conference. Yeah. Um, but I think what we need to do now is separate the, and I got drug into Twitter five or six years ago. You know, I'm, that's the only social media I'm on. Um, I've got enough friends without having, um, what's the other one called? No, anyway, <laughs> the, uh, Facebook, Facebook. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, um, but the, now we've got to separate the social part of it from the learning part of it. Have your social and I have your social part of Twitter and we like it, and, but really start to, to learn from it and, um, I guess sometimes I see that things, and I report, you know, commented back with you one the other week, Casey, that things get put up and everyone just likes and likes, but we, we've got to learn to be critical friends. Mm. And by critical friends is make comments to each other to help improve it and challenge it and question it, not just mm. like it. Yeah. And I don't see enough discernment in 
in helping that. You know, we don't want to get on and, oh, that, like the one I gave the other week, you know, with the leap. And I said, have you tried looking at it from the side view? Because mm -hmm. in motor skills, most of the time we want kids to look at the front and side because that's important. And that was, you took it the right way. Other people go, oh, I don't. Um, and we've got to learn to be that because um, when we were, you know, when we're studying, most of the stuff we cover, come across in universities and books is, has been peer reviewed and evidence based. And we've got to have, make sure that we're now doing the peer reviewing yep. because stuff gets put up there, which is awesome, yep. average and rubbish. Yep. And we also, one of the things I always um, look at, and I know you, you, you plague me, you put this question before me, um, is I, also, I always look in the teaching space. Is it linked to the curriculum or teaching? And was, it, and was that its initial purpose? Because particularly when you mentioned the at home, you guys know how many things suddenly became at home resources. And all mm. they were was something that was done there and they just put a page in front of it saying it's now an at-home resource. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also look at things, does it support the teaching and learning of children or does it support the teacher? Yeah. And probably my final comment on this, and I know we had this conversation when we, I think, first met at the start of this year or late last year, Casey, when you shared the FMS, you know, you're going to do some stuff, is I think I see a lot of plagiarism. I just call it out. I see people who have taken other people's work and without calling it their own, they don't give it, they don't recognize where it's come from. Yeah. And I see people who are, who are selling stuff that's, you know, <laughs> plagiarized. Mm -hmm. So and I think we need to be careful of that. And I've, I know I've shared stuff with teachers and I've seen it up on, on Twitter a week later or two weeks later. Yeah. And that's, maybe that's a pat on the back, but I think we really need to, to understand that. And that gets lost. A little bit. I know it got lost at university. That, that's why they now have um, tools that check people's plagiarism. I think we need to be there. But the potential of Twitter as a professional learning is just yeah. just awesome. Mm. And it's people like you guys who need to lead that way. Mm. Mm. And Joe, you're very, I suppose, new to the Twitter world. Um, so how have you, I suppose, initially found your initial interaction with it? Um, and you, I think you put it beautifully in, in an email you sent to me is that um, we need to stop and think before we post something. Are we sharing with re relevance and an educational purpose, as Bernie just said, or are we putting something up there for purely just entertainment? Um, and I think that has huge implications on our on-site teaching as well, um, is yeah. if we take that approach online, we can very easily end up going down that rabbit hole of just being a teacher for an hour of week that's there to entertain the kids yeah and I think it, it there's there's quite a lot there isn't there to take in but I guess it is it's um, what Bernie said it's about having a purpose about what you're using it for and mm. as educators now we've kind of got what we have to do which is I'm um, using the seesaw platform which as Bernie has referenced um, is awesome the online content there's so many opportunities here for consolidating learning, communication with families, extended practice, flipped learning, you know, videos, assessments. So that as a tool for education online is awesome. I think there's so many opportunities that we can move forward and carry on using that even when we move 
out of the virtual remote or virtual learning, I guess. Mm. Um, and then there's the other side, isn't there, where there is the, the social platform, which is the Twitter and the Instagram. And mm. I guess that's the bit that we don't really need to do. But I've certainly, um, I mean, if Bernie's on Twitter, I obviously had to get with the times and get on Twitter. So I jumped into this Twitter sphere, which I think is what you call it, which actually I think is an awesome name for it. And I actually, this tool is brilliant. And the reason why I say that is I'm actually using it at the moment as a bit of a, a research platform. It's an opportunity to see what's out there see what other people are doing um, and question. And there's also the opportunity to collaborate because from my very little experience, sometimes it's people saying, hey, I'm doing this. Um, has anybody had experience of doing this? And then it just opens up. And I think we've gone backwards and forwards quite a few times, Casey, with, oh, that sounds great. How did you do that? Did that work? Can you help me yeah. out? And you've actually got this really professional dialogue, mm -hmm. which you don't get on Instagram because Instagram is the, you know, the likes, um, I'm doing this, um, look at me. Um, so I think... There's that side of it, which is brilliant, but I guess it's how you use it. And that's mm -hmm. what Bernie said, the idea of purpose. And I actually had a really good conversation with Bernie a few weeks ago about a circle of influence and how you use a tool such as Twitter for the right effect. Yeah. And it would be really easy to get a bit swayed and mm -hmm. see an awesome idea and mm -hmm. think, wow, that's great. I'm going to use that. I'm going to take it into my school and I'm going to do it. And the obvious danger is there that we haven't seen the background. We haven't seen the process. We haven't had the questions. We haven't, it's not like a professional, um, um, when we go to a, a conference and we see the process and we ask questions and we do the trial and error, we role play it and we work out how, how do we teach this? Whereas what we see on Twitter and, um, Instagram we just often see that end product so we don't yeah. see the planning that has that's gone into that so I think it's, it's a very big picture mm. <laughs> and I think you just have to be really wise to connect with what you trust mm. and take things and use them but make sure you trial them and make your own judgment mm. um because you can't take something and replicate it. I mean, if we, went, if we took golf, for example, and you said, oh, my kids are playing golf, mm. and I went, oh, I'm going to go and do golf next week at Rip and Lee, well, I, 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 I've got no idea about golf. Mm. So that would be the same as me taking a task off online mm. and presenting it to the kids. It would, have, it would be a flop. Yeah. It would be a total failure. Um, it wouldn't be great modelling and going back to how much, if we can spend time being purposeful my 50 percent of teaching would it would be not purposeful at all it'd be quite the opposite and what what you're saying there joe is great because the couple of points one is you you got an idea and you and casey have then dialogued off it and maybe online or maybe offline you've done that the other thing and which you said at the end which really prompts me is the number of times i i see people go oh awesome idea joe mm -hmm. i'm going to do that monday yeah. and i again go thinking my first thought is 
what were you planned to do Monday anyway, but this is now better than that. Mm. And that yeah. really worries me. Yeah. Because it may well be it was an activity that was aligned with what you were doing. Yeah. And hopefully that's why you're doing it rather than um, a teaching model, which a guy introduced me to at um, Eastern Michigan University called the hope model, where you pick something and just hope it works. Mm. Um, so, but so that, so that really quite, that really worries me when that happens. I think it's also really good what you said, Joe, about the range of tools you're using, because I know that, you know, you do a heck of a lot more than I do because I don't need to use them all, I don't think. But um, you're using them for a purpose because we used to have a, a person present for us, um, Jane McPherson, who used to do some awesome ICT stuff. But the first thing, um, she's now teaching, uh, I know what she's teaching, I just can't remember, but she's a, an ICT leader and her first question was always, is this tool fit for purpose and why am I using it? <clears throat> Rather than, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't want to just use ICT or IT for the sake of IT. Yeah. It's got to have really good purpose in yeah. it and be used properly. Yeah. yeah I, I discussed that in, um, in episode four um, with one of my old mentors, Michael Smith. Um, and it was a, a, an ICT model that was introduced to me in, in uh, university where we shouldn't use ICT to substitute our teaching. It should be used to enhance our teaching. Yeah. Because, and Michael grounded it and he said, well, you know, we are trained in this profession. So the best teaching still comes from us. It doesn't come from a tablet yeah. or from a device. So I think that, and cause I, yeah, no, sorry, Bernie, you go. No, I was going to say too, in, in saying that too is great because, We've also got to make sure, I know a lot of people are using it to gather assessment data, mm -hmm. but they've got to first make sure that what they're in there gathering the data on is what they should be gathering the data on. Yeah. And some people just throw stuff in there and go, hey, look, I'm going to do that. But mm. the, what they, they haven't actually put enough thought into their rubrics or their, what they're observing or their yeah. learning outcomes, but they're really good at collecting data. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think touching on what Joe um, mentioned in um, in regards to to, to Twitter, um, professional dialogue is really important, and I know Bernie, you're really a huge advocate for it. Um, so maybe maybe the solution is creating two two accounts. You know, have your have your personal account where you can engage with that world um, from your own personal views. Um, and maybe you have just a purely professional one. And I know uh, Ben Clark, who has presented at Ashba before, he mentioned that that's what his is. He said, my account is purely professional. Um, and he also said that when he posts on there, he always finishes with a question. So he doesn't just assume that what he's putting out there, um, he wants feedback on. He will explicitly say, with a question, what he's asking others to contribute to with their own ideas or with their, um, you know, critique or feedback. So yeah. I, I think, you know, with only 120 characters that we have to work with on Twitter, we've got to be mindful and pretty concise with what we want to put across, but, you know, leave a bit of space for a question to provoke other educators out there to then engage with you professionally and bounce ideas on. And like you said, Bernie, don't be afraid of that and, I've certainly, uh, I think, you know, when someone commented on one of my first posts, 
I would have jumped back and gone, oh, hang on, someone's questioning what, I, what, what I'm doing. Like I thought what I was doing was perfect and that I know everything because I'm fresh out of university. You know, Is that the difference though with um, Twitter versus an Instagram? So Instagram does seem a little bit more like a, you might use that to, just to show what you're doing. Like I use Instagram with a, almost as a school account, yeah. but then Twitter is where you have that professional dialogue and the questions. And I think it's really, when it comes to the questions, I was reading a really great book at the weekend called The One Thing and someone recommended this reading um, on an online uh, PD course. And it said, the power to question is the basis of human progress questions are more important than answers and I, and that just stuck with me and it thought that's what provokes and initiates that thought process about why are we doing this and what are we doing doing it for and I think if we finished every Twitter um, post with a question it would make you check that what you're putting it putting something up there is fit for purpose and it's adding value or is it and if you haven't got a good question it probably doesn't need to be on there. That might be in more of a, a like. That's as what's happened with yourself and Joe, that there are many other people on Twitter who are meeting someone and taking that conversation. Because what you said about Ben is, is spot on. He's, he's great at putting himself to say, please question me and comment to me because he does really want that. And some people take offence at mm. comments or feedback when that offence is never meant. No. It's just here's but it, it, it's really important that, that we continue to do that. So I think we would all um, agree, or hope you know, we might agree, that we were all experts when we left our undergrad. We all knew everything. And the longer we're in the game mm. of teaching or education, the more we know that we do know a lot more, but we have more and more questions. Mm. Otherwise, you're um, the person who I... I used to have a quote uh, or a little cartoon from one of George Graham's books I used to use with my um, undergrads was a young teacher talking to someone and basically said, okay, you've been teaching 20 years, but have you taught one year 20 times and versus 20 different years? And so, you know, you guys will teach the same content in different years you may even teach the same game, mm. but you're teaching it to different kids. So you're probably going to teach it differently. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's, I think that's a perfect, uh, a perfect one to finish on um, and sort of summarizes our conversation about um, the now, the near and the next of physical education. But I think a lot of what you've talked about, Bernie is, um, you know, the basis of physical education um, may always stay the same. You know, the, the core fundamentals of it will always be there. The dynamics around it will, will change um, and we obviously can adapt to it as we have this year. But, um, you know, physical education is what it is um, and you've both summarised it beautifully. So um, I would like to say thank you uh, for giving up your, your afternoon to, to come on here and, and discuss this and, and many other things that arise from the conversations that we have on this podcast. But um, we've obviously got the Atchfa Victoria virtual conference that's coming up um, and people can, can register on it um, through the, the social media um, accounts that Atchfa Victoria has, but I'll also put it in the description of this episode. 
Um, Joe, you're presenting, um, presenting on assessment, I believe. Yep, uh, formative assessment in primary PE, so yep. purpose and implementation. Yep. yep. Come along. Beautiful. Yeah, no, it's. Um, there's, so I was looking through the program today and there's an abundance of amazing educators. And like Bernie said, there's some from overseas that we may not be able to hear from, um, which we now have the opportunity to, which is the power of, of, uh, of ICT. So I, I guess um, thank you very much again for giving up your time. Um, Bernie, I know you're obviously flat out organising uh, the conference and Joe, you're uh, this, this, this was that. This was actually the easiest conference to organise. <laughs> One, because Adriana's done most of it. But the secondly is when we asked teachers, they didn't necessarily have to go back and get permission because it's after school, before school, CRT, et cetera. But one of the things I would like to mention is there is, it is so important we get support because like other teacher associations, you know, we've lost um, significant amount of our income this year because we are a non-for-profit driven by we have a small seed grant, but we have to raise most of what we do. And so, yeah, the more support we can get, the better. But yeah. only come if it's worthwhile. Oh, look, believe me, it's certainly a worthwhile um, experience um, with the, the handful of conferences that I've been involved, involved with across the Atchba branches. But, um, yes, like Bernie said, as much support as we can get to Atchba Victoria, um, it will be greatly appreciated. Um, but yeah, jump on to the Atchford Victoria website uh, and register if you haven't already. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you there in a virtual capacity. So, but once again, thank you, Joe and Bernie for joining me on today's episode of the Phys Ed Table Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Phys Ed Table Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the Phys Ed Table, where you can have your say in each episode's poll to decide what our guests discuss next.